came to this, and it's uh, really exciting for me to be a part of a holiness movement. And to see all of uh, you pastors and lay leaders in what I consider as the maybe the beginning of a new movement of holiness. You know, uh, we, we run into all kinds of things. Uh, my first time I preached in the country of Peru, district superintendent said to me, Louis, what's going to be your focus while you're a missionary in Peru? Well, it doesn't take me too long to answer that question. One is uh, preaching holiness, and holiness as a definite work of grace, that God can do the work in our hearts. And the second is that God can help us to grow. And he looked at me and he said, you know, we, we already know that we're sanctified. We need preaching on maturity. Well, that uh, one year that we lived in Peru, I saw over 75 Nazarene preachers kneel at an altar to be sanctified holy. And he changed his thoughts. Several years ago, I had the uh, regional directors and the field strategy coordinators uh, in uh, Nashville in a camp there to, uh, we were working on strategy of uh, how to get into the 1040 window and how best to work. And, and uh, the, the consultant that we were using was a Southern Baptist wonderful brother, and we gave him a real hard time that week. <laughs> and uh, when he finished his last session after about three and a half days, he just closed his book and he looked around the room at all of us. He said, I want to talk to you Nazarenes about something. He said, you Nazarenes believe in holiness. Let me tell you something. All denominations are moving towards the holiness message. And I'm there just about to drop my teeth. And he said, uh, I want to really talk to you Nazarenes about something because we're moving towards the holiness message, but we don't know much about it. We need you Nazarenes to teach us, to preach it, teach it, and live it, and teach us the message. This is not a day for us to retrench. It's a day for us to move on. God's given us a message. And I'm so excited about these holiness congresses or conferences we don't care how, how you call it or how you do it. Uh, this is the second one uh, that we planned early on. But let me just share before the message. Uh, they've asked me to just share how these things got started. Uh, I'm in my office one day in Nelson, Purdue. I don't know if you know Nelson, great evangelist. Theologian, maybe, of the evangelist. Called me and he said, Louis, said, uh, 
Is there any way that you could uh, pull some of us together to kind of give us a new, new focus on, uh, on holiness? He said, I know that uh, different ones are doing different things, but uh, I wonder if you would uh, try to help us. And I said, Nelson, that's not my deal here in the U.S. I'm director of World Mission. I don't have that, uh, uh, that latitude to do that in the U.S., not in my portfolio. He said, I understand that, but I know your heart. Would you help us? So I go to uh, Dr. Mittendorf and uh, bend his ear a little bit and uh, talk to him about uh, what Nelson had asked me to do and and that we would really like to, uh, we'd like to get together and begin to talk about uh, maybe rekindling the holiness movement. And he gave me some parameters. You'd expect a good general superintendent to do that, but good parameters. And we, we uh, pulled together a, a uh, committee, just a small committee, Dr. Tom Hermes uh, from the Christ and Christian Union Church, a group of us Nazarenes, uh, pastors, district superintendents, and so forth. And uh, we began uh, begin to just dream and dialogue and pray and ask God what would, uh, what would we do if we were given the opportunity to do something. And it just seemed like the sweeping. You ever been in those God moments? Like the sweeping of the Holy Spirit came and said, keep it simple. Just, uh, just dream the dream of preaching holiness, nothing negative. And I said to the guys right up front, I don't want to be a part of anything that's fighting anything. We need to be a part of something that's positive that can pro- propagate the message of holiness. And we've all been in these services, and I don't know about you, but my heart has been rekindled and renewed. And we need that. Got a bunch of pastors here today, and you guys give and give and give, and very seldom do you get. And these are times that uh, God can really move and touch your life as well. So uh, we, we wanted to focus them simply. One is just simple, and maybe not simple, but deep, simple holiness. Nothing complicated. We make holiness so complicated that people say they can't understand. Have you ever heard that? And the second is prayer. We didn't want to have dialogue. We didn't want to discuss it. Is this right? Is this wrong? But we just wanted to make it a time of reflection and ask God what he is saying to us. We've done some of these overseas, uh, particularly in Africa and Fiji. I was in one a few years ago and real revival came and has been a catalytic thing in bringing renewal and movement in that part of the world. You know, if we'll just let God get a hold of our hearts, forget the politics and forget all of the things that we, we go through day by day, and, and uh, if we just, just get 
get down to the basics of who God is and what God wants to do, we'll see some significant things. Now, I've asked the regional directors uh, to bring in uh, four or five uh, uh, leaders from the different six regions. And uh, we're going to be talking in these days with the regional directors, and I'll be talking to them tomorrow how we can roll this out around the world. We plan these two conferences, but others are beginning to spring up. And we're talking about one in Oklahoma City. Uh, we're just looking for people who will be hosts. And that was one of the, the requests that Dr. Mittendorf asked me to do, is make sure that you have a host. I'm so grateful, Dr. Graves, for your vision and allowing this to come to this campus. And Dr. Bowling and I were just talking about, wouldn't this be wonderful in every one of our campuses? And God just melt our hearts together and see a movement of God take place. And I think some wonderful things could happen. Tomorrow afternoon, instead of at 3.30, I think we're just going to do it right at the end of the first, uh, that afternoon session and take about 20 minutes and just outline what you could do as a host, as a local pastor, or what you could do as a district superintendent, or maybe a group of you pastors in a given city could do to uh, just host, and some of us will come alongside of you. One of the things that we don't want this to be is a denominational plan. We want it to be God, uh, not, not negative on the denomination. I love the Church of the Nazarene. We're a great church. Uh, Dr. Tom, uh, sorry he backslid and went over to the, oh, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, we have, we, we have 13 holiness groups that have affirmed these holiness congresses. No one's trying to take the credit. No one wants to control them. We want them to be turned loose to you. And I know the Board of General Superintendents could get involved and they could lead this, but wouldn't it be just so much better if every pastor could own these and that we could just see them begin to pop up all over the world and that God could do some pretty amazing things. My dream is that we'll see a holiness congress in every local church every year. And what we planned is that there will not be a huge outlay. Hate to break the news to all of the speakers, but there's no honorarium. We're all doing it because we love the message of holiness. Now, isn't that a nice twist? You, you hear me? Uh, where pastor could go into another place and, and give a holiness message where we're willing to give. You guys have done a lot of sacrifice just getting here. But would we be willing to sacrifice to keep the message of holiness alive 
and moving and propagate this message. Would you? Hello, are you out there? I think we're all willing to sacrifice and let God move. I don't know what God's up to, but I just believe that God is doing a God thing. The one we had in, in Ohio a few months ago, I've been a part of a lot of great things, but we all came away just knowing that God had been there. And last night and today, we've seen God's hand, God moving, and he's with us. And he wants to build his kingdom. That's what it's all about. And we don't need to fight of whether we're Wesleyan or whether we're American holiness. Yes, uh, Dr. Mittendorf, it's yes, we are. Uh, we, we ought, in my opinion, we ought to be better than Wesley if we're doing theology, and we ought to be better than the American holiness if we're doing theology right. The message of God, the message of holiness is so dynamic. It'll feed your people. It'll help you with a lot of your problems. It'll solve a lot of your problems. And I've seen it happen around the world where God's used the message of holiness to, to move his people in mighty ways. And one of my dreams, and I heard uh, somebody talk about it here about uh, the United States. And one of my dreams is see a revival come to America. Would we let him work through us? I just pray that we will. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to his power that is working in us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move upon our hearts this afternoon. We want your will, we want your way. We want to be dead, crucified. so that Christ can live in us and be seen in us. And I pray, God, that you would move in such a big way upon our hearts that we will leave this service as changed people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we would ask. That he's able to do anything according to his power that is working in us. Now how, how many of you really believe that verse? 
Get a little weak out there. No, we do believe that verse. The problem, though, is we really don't believe that verse. We believe it, but it's really hard to believe. And I know that a lot of people in the world read this verse primarily as uh, God taking care of our needs and God supplying uh, the day-by-day, those kinds of things. But that is really not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about something way deeper than that. Now, I didn't have the uh, privilege of growing up in church. Now, we grew up in southern Indiana and a little town called Versailles, Indiana, about 50 miles west of Cincinnati. Didn't have a church of the Nazarene there. We had a pilgrim church in uh, that uh, town. And my mother, a few times, would, uh, would take us to uh, Sunday school. And one of the things that I'll never forget is that Sunday school teacher as a little kid, though I, I may have only gone to church maybe one or two times that year, would always send me a birthday card. I never got away from that. But we didn't go to church. Dad was a drunk. He was an alcoholic. He might disappear for maybe a week, two weeks. We wouldn't even know where he was. And then when he would come home, we'd wish that he hadn't come home. I don't know if you've ever dealt with alcohol. They tell me that one of the next battles the Church of the Nazarene is going to have is drinking social drinking. Don't fall into that trap. It's not a pretty trap. And we can't go there. Holiness won't let us go there. And maybe that's one of the reasons it may be the next battle is because our people really have not had a heart transformation of heart cleansing. Well, I, as a teen, I hated Dad. Wish many times that he wouldn't make it home. Uh, it wasn't a pretty sight for a teenager. I used to beg my mother to leave him. Uh, many, many times I begged her to leave him. She never would. We, we, we fought a lot. I've, I'm the baby of nine, so... He was a little softer on me than he was the older kids. He had probably killed one of those, but uh, uh, my mother protected me, and I got away with a lot more than I should have, probably. When I was 18, Dad came home drunk, and he and I got into our, our last, real, real last battle. And I got up the next morning and loaded my clothes in the car and, and left home. And something happened soon after that. Little church in Osgood, Indiana, running uh, about 60 probably, maybe 50 in Sunday school, led by a young preacher, Ron Freeland, 23 years of age. And he got a hold of Dad's name. And he came uh, from Osgood 
past Versailles down on the farm, and he knocked on the door. Dad was 60 years of age. And Dad said, don't come back. Now, preacher, what would you do? We run and say, well, that's the last of that. I'm glad that a 23-year-old didn't give up. i just gotten out of Olivet. Had a passion for souls. Wanted to reach people. And the next week, Ron was back at our house. Dad said, don't come back. We're not interested. The next week, Ron was back at knocking on the door. Dad said, don't come back. Two years. You hear me? Two years, every week, he knocked on Dad's door. A year into that, my mother went to church and got saved. God began to bring conviction upon Dad. I tell you, this church thing is not human. We think it's human. This church thing is a God thing. And when God gets over all over us, something begins to happen. And what I call one of the worst wicked men, womanizer, drinker, spent all of her money. I, I mean, this guy, I wouldn't have given you a, a nickel for hope that he could ever get saved. God began to convict him. When dad was 61, he said to me later, he said, I came home drunk. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was in my bedroom, uh, sound asleep. And he said, Jesus walked into the room. And he said, John, if you don't quit drinking, you're going to die. And for dad, it was so real. He never went back to the bar. I don't know how. I can't explain all of that. But he knows how. And he's even started going to church some. When uh, he was 62 years of age, he got up out of bed one Sunday morning and he said, God... I'm going to church today. And he went around behind the house and he got down on his knees and he said, God, I want you to shake me this morning that I can't sit any longer. And the preaching hadn't even arrived yet and some singers were singing a song and it was a family and the husband was uh, leading as they went down in front of the altar and they were singing about the rock. And he said, uh, 
reached in his pocket and he pulled out a dollar bill and he said, and this is not the rock. And they began to sing, but the rock is Jesus. I've never heard the song since. Uh, I heard it one time, but I've never heard it since, way back there. And Dad, 62 years of age, sitting back on this side of that little church, began to shake. And he said, I couldn't sit any longer. And he got up out of his chair and ran down to the altar. Well, you can just imagine, that little church just went wild. <laughs> you know, that, that will take a little bit of the stiffness out of us. We, we, we try to ritualize the church to where we almost take God out rather than let him move. Well, I tell you, it changed that little church. I said, oh, give him two or three months, he'll get over it. He didn't get over it. And he began to talk to me, and I won't go into all of the the story, I don't have time this afternoon, but, you know, I was living in Cincinnati with my wicked buddy, and we were living with his grandmother, who just happened to be a believer, probably an accident. <laughs> and I was working as a barber downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, the chair next to me was vacant, and they hired a new barber. And he was about 40 years of age, and he had been converted about two years, just happened to be a believer. And all day long, he wanted to talk to me about the Lord. I'd go back to my buddy's house, and his grandmother would talk to me about the Lord, and I'd go back home, and my father and mother would talk to me about the Lord. I didn't have a chance. Well, I began to see the change in my father. You know, that really makes a difference. And for the first time in my life, I went downtown close to my shop there, and I bought a Bible, my first Bible. I didn't even know that there were four Gospels. And my buddy's grandmother started me in the book of Matthew, and I read the word for nine months, and the word began to get a hold of me. And Dad, before each one win one ever started, started each one win one. And he invited me to a revival campaign. And that Sunday morning, Louis Bustle, 21 years of age, became a new person in Jesus Christ. You know, when he transforms, he transforms. When you're converted, you have power to live without continuing in sin. Do you know that? That's a fallacy in our preaching and on holiness many times. You can live without falling back into sin. And so I began my walk with the Lord, and I, I would go back uh, 50 miles every Sunday, and I, uh, I loved that little church. We had a converted Roman Catholic, a lady who said she didn't have any education. I would have driven 50 miles just to hear her teach Sunday school. 
because she would just bounce overjoyed at what God was doing and how God was working. And she could deliver the word so alive. And she may not have had much education, but let me tell you something. She didn't need much education. God worked through her. I took notes. I probably knew more theology and doctrine in six months than most of the candidates that I interview for, for missionary service. It's, it's unbelievable how we can get through seminary and not know doctrine. Hello. Doctrine is important. Doctrine defines how we live, how we walk. A lot of people live better than their doctrine, but let me tell you something. Your doctrine is what, what guides you and, and leads you, and it's your doctrine that establishes you, and it helps you to live the life that God has called you to live. One Sunday morning, we went to church. I was driving, we, I parked on the grass in front of the church on the other side of the street, a little bitty church in Osgood, Indiana. Dad was on my right, and he got out of the car on this side, and I can still remember as we looked at each other over the top of the car. He said, Louis, have you ever been sanctified? I gave one of those good definite testimonies. Mm, yeah, I guess so. You know, you know how we do? I had no idea what he was talking about. I guess I thought I did. Evidently, he had talked to the pastor because when I went in and I was sitting there in the church, and I thank God for a pastor with a passion for holiness. You hear me? Word for that, I'm not sure that I would be in church today. I, I, yes, I was saved. But without the deep work of grace, like one youth pastor said to me, well, I don't believe in preaching holiness to the, to the youth. He said, there's been a study made that says that the youth cannot understand holiness until they get to be about 22, 23 years of age. And then he said, uh, this is the kicker. He said, you know, it's all I can do just to keep them saved. <laughs> well, by the time I finished with him, he had sweat running down both cheeks. <laughs> That's exactly why we need to preach holiness. I'm so glad for a pastor who preached holiness. Dr. Mittendorf, you're right. Holiness needs to soak. God needs to prepare our hearts. This is not one of those instant coffee things that you can go and put a teaspoon of coffee in your water and you've got uh, instant holiness, sanctification. This is a skimming of the skimming, as Uncle Buddy would talk about it. This is the dying out. This is the turning over. 
It's the committing. And we've heard great preaching today, and I don't have to repeat all that they've said, but let me tell you something. There's something to what has been said already in this conference. It's significant. And that preacher preached on holiness that morning. And here I am, a new believer, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm walking in all the light, and I'm, I'm so thrilled with the, the, the message that God has uh, given to me and the salvation that he's given to me. I, I, I tell you, I am absolutely thrilled. I'm already now teaching a Sunday school class, and I, I'm, I'm doing everything that you can do in a church even knocking on doors, even though I wish many times that nobody would come to the door. You know what I'm talking about? Scared to death. And uh, that Sunday morning, this pastor did something that I, I don't remember him ever doing again. He said, I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads at the end of his sermon. He said, now I want to see the hands of all of you who know that you're sanctified. And I got my hand up. And boy, the Holy Spirit just absolutely zapped me. And I began to pull my arm, arm back down. And for the first time, the Holy Spirit began to talk to me about really turning my life over to him. Now, I was already going through some of those struggles, but I just figured that was a natural thing, and that's what we do so many times is we bring God down to our level and we satisfy for much less than what he wants to do to bring us to his level of holiness. But that's the reason we have to have a passion for preaching and teaching holiness so that people can really catch the glimpse and they can really get the experience and they can walk in the light and they can discipline their, their life of holiness so that they can just grow and grow and be all that God wants them to be. Amen. And so uh, I begin to seek. And uh, I remember the first time I went to the altar. Now, this is a legalistic Indianapolis district back in those days. By the way, I'm so glad that I went through legalism. Hello. I know many of you probably have been through it, and you are glad you're out of it. But I'm glad that I saw that side where I heard the long hair preach. Uh, uh, the women had, uh, most of the preaching were against you women, by the way. <laughs> but I even got to the place where I thought, well, maybe, maybe men could only wear long sleeves. And then I went to Trevecca. <laughs> and I thought, None of these kids are saved, <laughs> let alone sanctified. And then I got into the Word. 
Now, it's not that I didn't hear good holiness preaching, but I heard a lot of bad holiness preaching. What happened to us was we moved from one side to the other side rather than sticking in the middle. It's exactly what the devil would like for the church of the Nazarene to do. But God wants us to be right down the middle, be centered in holiness, and have a balance, and have good holiness preaching so that our people can understand it and experience the, the, uh, the message and, and, uh, and walk in the, the light that God gives them. And I got up from the altar. Well, they beat me half to death that morning. <laughs> Take it by faith. You know, we used to call holiness as it. Take it by faith. You know, we are so, so in a hurry to get to lunch that we really don't wait and pray people through. You're right, Dr. Mittendorf. And we don't even use that term very much, but we really need to get back to that. And I've looked for another word. There, I can't find another word. Pray people through to victory. This is not a head thing. This is a heart transformation. This is a God-divine work of grace. It's not something that we can work our way into. And so I took it by faith. And I can still remember getting up and I went back to my seat and I wrote down in the front of my Bible, sanctified a certain date. Well, in the next year, the whole front of my Bible was full of dates. Now, don't laugh, because some of you could do the same thing. <laughs> you know why? Faith is not here. Let me tell you something. You can know. And pastor, your people can know. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And if you have been filled with God's Holy Spirit, you will know. It's not some kind of a guessing game. This is God's work, and he bears witness with your heart that he has come and he has cleansed your heart of all sin. And it wasn't until I was 23, just getting ready to go to college. And Dr. Middendorf did that prepare me for college. Just a few weeks before. Now my second pastor, Howard Baker, took me to my first camp meeting. And we went on Monday night. And I was sitting back with my pastor on the back row. And the evangelist that night just absolutely tore me apart. You see, I was professing to be sanctified. 
I was on the church board. I was leading youth. I was doing knocking on doors. I was doing about everything that you could, you could imagine doing as a layperson. And that preacher that night just absolutely ripped me apart. And I did a deal with God. I said, God, if you really want me to be sanctified, I want you to take me home. And I want you to help Louis Bustle to die out this week. And I went home and I began to pray and fast. I prayed and fasted all week long. And I said uh, in my deal with God, if you want me to be sanctified, we're coming back on Sunday. Tell that preacher to preach on holiness. I don't remember anything else he said. Just remember his first words. Literally, I didn't hear anything else. I heard his first words, you can be sanctified holy. And when he gave the altar call, he didn't have to beg me to go. I jumped up out of my seat and ran down to the altar. And before anybody else ever got down to the, to the altar to uh, pray with other people, uh, nobody had to beat me in the back and nobody had to try to convince me. Louis Bustle had died out that week, and God did the work in my heart. It's been a lot of years now, and I'm glad, I'm glad for having experienced all that I've experienced in being filled with God's Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. It's the only thing that will hold you. Why? Because it's God's plan. For total cleansing. And I won't go into this, but when you preach holiness, preach a that sin is twofold. Constantly go back to it and help your people to understand that sin is twofold and you need two works of grace to cover the two types of sin. It's so elementary and it's so basic, but let me tell you something. It'll help your people to understand simple holiness. And for me, that is, that is so basic. And, and I've seen thousands of people sanctified uh, just just talking about uh, what God can do in their lives. And, and I've seen them kneel at an altar, and I've seen them die out. And, and when uh, that preacher talked about that I needed to be crucified, that's, that's really what happened. And I don't believe that anybody is sanctified any time in, in any day unless they have totally died out to self-centeredness and self-sovereignty and let God come and cleanse their heart of all sin. Now we have the hope. We have the cure for sin. 
You got all of these churches all over the world uh, that preach a sinning religion. But let me tell you something God sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross that we could be totally freed from all sin. Does it make us perfect human beings? No. That's the reason we need to be experts in preaching and teaching holiness so that our people can know that uh, holiness doesn't do everything automatically. What holiness does, it purifies the motive of our heart. It cleanses our heart from all sin so that we don't have that inclination towards sin. But it gives us a perfect love that we can love God with all of our hearts. And when we love God with all of our hearts, something automatic will happen. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of a story. Back in the middle of all the my seeking, we go home one Sunday morning and Dad uh, pulls up a chair here and a chair here and for the first time in my life I'm literally facing him for a father-son talk. Probably about 22 years of age. And he said, uh, son, sit down, I want to I tell you a story. And he started out about when he was my age, how a pastor came into the area where he lived and, and uh, dad was converted. He said, I, I got out of church that night and, and I ran, he said, it seemed like I ran for nearly a mile. I thought I, I didn't even touch the ground. He said, I was so happy. I was involved in uh, leading singing and, and in assemblies and all of that, Church of the Nazarene. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever heard this story. And I'm just shocked. 22 years of age. And I've never heard this story in all of that horrible life that he lived in all of those years. It just I mean, it's racing through my mind. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Louis, I thought I would... I got to the place where I thought I would never, ever go back on God. But they, he said they came with the message of holiness. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, Louis, I failed to go on and let God sanctify me holy. And he said, I lost out. Wow. I mean, some things are going through my mind. And then he looked at me and he said, Louis, if you're going to live for God, go on and let God sanctify you holy. Now you know why I'm so strong. I'm preaching holiness. I saw what happened to him. And I've seen what's happened in my own life. It's been the experience that has enabled me to live a victorious life all through these years, and I'm so grateful for the message. I love the message. I love the messenger who sends us the message. And I, I want my kids 
to have a church that will be a church that will propagate the message of holiness and getting people saved and sanctified so that they can walk the life that God wants them to walk. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power, his power, that works in us. What this is really referring to, and if you have your scripture, turn with me to verse 16, that he would grant, Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. And now unto him who is able to do this work in your lives. Listen to it who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, uh, that's way more than we believe is possible. Way more than most churches believe is possible. But let me tell you, he is able. Amen. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my sitters. Oh, no, that's the way Nazarenes like to read it. You'll be my What? My witnesses, power to be victorious in walking the walk that God wants us to walk. Now, I'm going to pick on my friend Gene. Would you come up? I want you to look back now at verse uh, 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. That's what holiness is. It's love. It's perfect love. It's not that we're perfect, but we have a perfectly cleansed heart so that we can perfectly love God. There's nothing that comes between us and God. And if there's anything in there, it will hinder our perfect love for God. He puts his love in us. I want to I share with you something here that the Spanish Bible translation gives that to me is so rich and so deep and so much explains us more than our English Bible. And the Spanish Bible says that uh, not you being rooted and grounded in love, but it uh, means that you will be cemented in love. Now let's just suppose that this afternoon I build a little box here and it's about that deep and I pour in sand and gravel and, and cement and a little bit of water and I do the mixture and I take uh, my friend Gene's shoes off and I just move him right over into the middle of that uh, box 
and wind your feet down into the bottom of the concrete. And we wait two hours. You know where Gene will be tomorrow? <laughs> Thanks, Ray. That's what holiness does for us. Is that the end? No. It's the beginning. And we need to preach it as the beginning. But this is a passion for holiness that God is calling us to. And if we could see these congresses or conferences develop all over the world, and we Nazarenes gather a passion, a new passion, not a passion for what our fathers had, but a, a new passion for the message of holiness, and we get our people sanctified, holy, I tell you, it'll revolutionize the church of the Nazarene and the 3C church. It'll revolutionize the message of holiness. And may we be then, then the teachers of all of the other denominations what the message of holiness really is. And we can take the world for Jesus. I won't go into much detail, but there's revival coming. It's coming out of China. I can't, don't have time to go into it. It's going to happen. I'm telling the regional directors we need to get ready all over the world. Let me tell you, Americans, something. Get ready. Revival's coming. Martyrs are going to be all over the place. But I tell you, out of that back to Jerusalem movement, I tell you, many, many millions of people are going to come to Christ. And I believe, I really believe that God is doing something uh, today that we have never seen happen, that has never happened. It is an all-out effort to reach a major number of people around the world. And if we're prepared, holiness in every church, It'll prepare our hearts for evangelism like we've never done before and reaching people for the kingdom of God. Are you ready? Are you willing? I want you to stand with me for Alan's going to come and he's going to lead us. I'd just like for you to bow your heads. I think you can sing without, uh, without looking and Alan's going to Lead us. And I want you to prepare your hearts this afternoon. And say, oh God, what, what could you, would you want to do in my heart to develop a passion for preaching and teaching holiness? Is it for pastors? It's for laity? All of us have some kind of, uh, some kind of a teaching, whether it's formal or informal. All of us have some kind of preaching with a, even with our, with our own lives. Would you let God just give you a passion, a new passion for the message of holiness? And you'd make a commitment to him, I will preach your message. Sing, Alan.
Dr. Henry Jekyll was an upright, respectable, Victorian English gentleman. He was honest. He was a man of integrity. He was a compassionate person. He was a model citizen. He had a great reputation. He's the kind of person that every one of us in this room would want to emulate. And yet, there resided deep within him a second personality, an alter ego, if you will, a persona that was such a contrast to what was seen in public that when it was released, when it was empowered by the use of a self-administered drug, a kind of mood-altering, personality-changing concoction which Dr. Jekyll had formulated secretly, and when he would take that potion, it would release this inner shadow self, and the other personality was so different than the public personality that he even took a different name, Mr. Edward Hyde. The story of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, is a story that can be read at a variety of levels. Young people like it because it's a story of mystery, and there is intrigue, and there are twists and turns, and you can't wait to see what happens next. But if one reads that story at an adult level, you encounter the struggle of one individual with what has been called the shadow self. I think it was Dr. Carl Jung, the noted psychiatrist and writer of a generation ago, who coined that phrase, shadow self, saying that there is within every woman and every man an inner person that isn't seen publicly, but is very dominant, very much part of the person. Robert Louis Stevenson's story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the story of one man's battle with this inner self. Those of you that have read the book may recall that at the end of the book, in what is called the full statement, Dr. Jekyll confesses how he would from time to time take that potion and just give himself over to the full expression of evil made visible in this other person, Mr. Hyde. But then he could take the potion again and he would revert back to the public person that everyone knew and respected. But it became a frightening story because over time, Dr. Jekyll lost control of that process until regardless of what he did, he could no longer restrain the inner person, the inner presence of evil, until it finally dominated his life. And in the end, everything that was good, everything that was respected, everything he wanted to be, was lost. Now why tell such a story at a holiness summit? because it is very much the same story that the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7. Dr. David Graves got the morning started beautifully for us in Romans chapter 6, 
walking us verse by verse through that story, telling us of the young man who in fact struggled with that inner person. And I pick up where Dr. Graves concluded this morning. We have here in Romans 7 what is, in, at least in some ways, a kind of transparent moment. It's almost as if we, we have a page torn from the diary of St. Paul, a spiritual biography that, as we read it, we recognize it is not just his story, it's everyone's story. Listen, for example, to what Paul says in verse 15 of Romans chapter 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. He says, I'm an enigma to myself. I don't understand why I'm like this. I don't understand why. When I want to do right, I end up not doing it. And I practice that which I say I hate. Verse 16, he picks it up again. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. He is pointing out that there is an interloper in his life, an intruder, someone who grabs the reins of his personality and causes him to do and say and respond in ways that he doesn't want to do. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that, that is in my sinful nature. For what I have the desire to do, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living within me that does it. Again, Paul says, I'm suddenly, powerfully, Mr. Hyde, rather than the good Dr. Jekyll. So I find this law at work, this principle at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Now that's the testimony you would expect, isn't it? In the inner person, I delight in God's law, but I see another law, another force, another principle at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And then at verse 24, there is a kind of wail of the Spirit, the cry of one who is captive. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But notice that in this cry of a desperate person, there is hope. He may, in fact, be helpless, but he knows there is a rescue. He knows there has to be an answer to this. And so it breaks forth in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he celebrates in the midst of that 
extended chapter about the ups and downs of life. Towards the end of verse 25, then, he summarizes the entire passage. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. I am, in fact, a walking civil war. I'm a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. Some days I'm up and I'm victorious and I feel like I've broken through and then other days this inner shadow self seizes control of me and although I want to do what is right, I end up doing what is wrong. And it is this very condition that we focus on tonight. Winning the war within. But I don't want to focus any longer on on the defeat that is interwoven through this. The truth is, I don't think I have to tell you any more about that. We've all lived that. We've all been in that moment. I want us to celebrate the good news of full salvation that comes unfolded here, that we can be not only forgiven, we can be set free. We're going to camp out tonight at verse 24. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want us to hear the gospel tonight. This passage from Romans is a complex and very difficult passage. So let me just put a semicolon in this sermon. And in fact, let me step outside the sermon for a moment because of our context here. And I just want to highlight some of the issues that are going on in this passage. For one thing, I want you to know that I know what's happening in the midst of the text underneath there. But there's another reason I'm doing this that I'll tell you in a moment. You see, some folks raise the issue of whether this is in fact autobiographical or is it just metaphorical. Uh, The question is, is Paul giving us his personal testimony or is he just kind of speaking in a kind of for instance way. The question comes down to how do we understand the personal pronoun I? Who is I in Romans 7? That's a question scholars wrestle with, and it's a good question. Uh, There's also the question, is the life described in Romans 7 one who is living under the law and thus struggling to measure up to that standard? Or is this the portrait of one who has in fact been justified and regenerated by grace and yet still struggles to live the life of Christ? In other words, is this the the diary of an enlightened sinner who recognizes that she or he is out of step with God, who knows that God requires the law but can't quite live up to it? Is this pre-conversion or is it post-conversion? Now the Reformed tradition suggest that it is in fact post-conversion, but they take a step beyond where I would go because they say this is in fact the story of one who has accepted Christ, but they make this Romans 7 normative. They say that's just the way life's going to be, friends. That Christ can save you, but you're going to remain sinful. And there'll be moments when you sin in word, thought, and deed every day. So get used to it. Do the best you can do and God will help you. That opens the door to a Keswickian holiness at best. 
Who is the prisoner of sin in Romans 7? The unsaved? Or the saved but not yet sanctified believer? Or is Paul in fact simply talking about the law itself? That's the broader context when you go to the beginning of Romans 7. He's just saying that the law is kind of under the captive of sin. Or maybe he's just talking about humanity in a general sense. It's a confusing passage. Uh, it's confusing because of the words Paul uses. For example, repeatedly in this passage, he uses the word which we translate flesh. But you have to figure out what he's talking about because he uses flesh in many different ways. The NIV translates the Greek word sarx, flesh, as sinful nature. But other scholars object to that. No, don't equate it with a sinful nature. It's just the corporate condition of humanity. Verse 15, Paul uses the word do six times in three, three different verbs uh, in the midst of that. Well, a sermon, as compared to a classroom, is not the place to unpack those issues and try to sort them out. I mentioned them tonight just so you know that there are these cross-currents going on. But I also mentioned them tonight to make this point. We need to get over focusing on what we don't know and start preaching what we do know. The truth is, for the last decade or two, there have been so many, well, on the one hand this and on the other hand that, that I think it has paralyzed a generation of Nazarene preachers who don't want to preach it wrong, so they don't even preach it. I'm saying get over it. Set aside what you don't know and preach what you do know because there is a holiness message in this passage and it rings with Paul's words, thanks be to God. And I'll tell you, there's a lot I don't know about this and I'll never know it, but there's a lot I do know. It's like the guy in John, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. I can't tell you how, I couldn't show you the way, but I'm not going to dampen my testimony. So put your thinking caps on tonight, will you? And let's just go deep and wade and work our way through this and find the good news of the gospel. Maybe the place to begin is to put down a few benchmarks along the way to help us. <clears throat> let's go back there to verse 15. Notice that Paul describes, what he's describing here, is something that exceeds human understanding. That is to say, you'll never fully, rationally understand what he's describing here. You won't get to a point where you go, oh, oh, I get it, I understand that. No, he clearly says in verse 15, I do not understand what I do. That's his complaint. I don't understand why. When I want to do right, I do wrong. I don't understand why. When I've decided I'm never going to do that again, I end up doing it again. His beginning point here is to declare on a rational, intellectual level that you cannot make sense fully of this inner conflict. And remember, this is, this is the Apostle Paul writing. Uh, this, is, uh, um, this is no spiritual or intellectual lightweight. He is not a mental midget. And yet he says, I can, ex I, I can experience moments of great spiritual victory and turn and fall on my face spiritually. I don't understand it. And isn't that true to life? Not many of you, but a few of you know that I used to be quite a basketball player. Now, I didn't play professional ball. By the time I got to that point, I had other plans and uh, 
Well, in fact, I didn't play college ball because coaches had other plans when I got there. <clears throat> and I suppose, if full disclosure is in order, I, I didn't even go out for the team in basketball in, in high school, but in junior high, <laughs> now, I'm telling you the truth here, in junior high, I was quite a ball player. And I remember one particular game, I was 12 or 13, and we were playing in an afternoon against a neighboring junior high, and I had played most of the first half and was starting the second half. And you know, in those days, the second half started and they had the jump ball, and the center, uh, my buddy Tom, got the tip and it came right to me, and I did one of those moves that I was famous for, a step in this direction and then a quick move in this direction, gaining some time on my man, and I broke for the basket and 10, maybe 12, oh, maybe 15 feet out, I stopped, squared my shoulders, jumped, and shot, and just as the ball rolled off my fingertips, I heard my coach, I heard most of the players, I heard half of the crowd yell, wrong way! <laughs> True story. You know, we had been shooting toward that basket the whole first half. <laughs> but they reversed it. And in my excitement to have the ball and that classic move, I shot a perfect shot. I mean, there was nothing but net. <laughs> Two points for the other team. In fact, I was voted most valuable player on both teams. <laughs> And that's a true story, all the way through. <clears throat> now, we can understand how something like that could happen. Now think about it. My intention was right. My skill was okay. My performance in terms of the execution of the shot was everything it should have been. I just, I just forgot in that moment that it was the wrong basket. Well, we can understand those moments, can't we? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about those moments when you just forget. Or, or when somehow it just sneaks up on you and you, you, you just forgot you were going to do that. No, we, we can understand that. That's a mental lapse. But Paul is describing a condition that he says, I can't understand how this happens. There is no mental explanation because it is a problem of a different nature. You see, he identifies the conflict as an inner war, a spiritual battle. Verse 19, For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now understand that Paul is not saying, I never do good. He is not saying, I always fail. He's not confessing here to some great crime. I robbed a bank in Corinth. I killed a man in Athens. No. He is simply saying this. I too often fail to do the very thing I wish to do. In my words, in my deeds, in my attitudes, I experience this inner conflict. And I'm such a contradiction to myself. It's not that I don't know what is right. It's not that I don't want to do what is right. Look at the last part of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. All of this indicates that this is not an understanding problem. 
This is not a will problem. This is a power problem. This is a problem with having enough spiritual energy. I do not have the strength to overcome this force within me. Well, let's review just a moment. Verse 15 starts with his complaint. I, I don't understand why I do what I do. He describes the conflict. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Then in verse 16, he gets to a kind of moment of concession. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree. I, I concede that the law is good. Well, what in the world does that mean? I mean, look at that verse. If I do what I don't want to do, then I'm agreeing that the law is good. Do, do you see that, how that doesn't fit? How is it that this failure is somehow evidence that the law is good? Stay with me here. This is a subtle moment. It is, I think, though, a hinge on which the passage begins to swing. Paul is saying that instead of losing heart because of this conflict, he sees, in fact, a ray of hope. He's pointing out that the conflict gives evidence that deep within his heart and mind and will, there is both the knowledge and the desire to do what is right. The word that Paul uses in that verse that we translate agree is the same word from the Greek language that we get the word symphony. Isn't that a sweet word? Symphony. Paul is saying, I, I know that in my heart and in my mind and in my will, I am in harmony with God. That's really who I am. But there is this other problem. Deep within me, I don't reject the will of God. I don't resent the will of God. I just can't seem to do the will of God. But it is from that point that hope begins to rise. You see, this conflict indicates the presence of life. And this inner light means that there is, in fact, spiritual energy there. And I think it is a moment that all of us need to get to when we realize we can't conquer this by knowing more. We can't conquer this by trying harder. That's not the issue. The only help is going to have to come from God. And so that moment of defeat, the light goes on. And he says, this is not a battle that I'm waging. It is sin in me that's waging this battle. He begins to realize that we must, need, we must have God. And thus, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The root of the problem, the cause of the conflict, the one waging war is not him, for he clearly says, I agree, the law is good. But rather it is this inner force within him. I'm not at war with God. I am, in fact, the battlefield where that war is being raged. On the one hand, Paul says, here at the very heart of who I am, in the depths of my being, at the point of my essential self, I love God. I want to do what's right. I don't dispute his law. In fact, I agree with it. But when I look at my outer life, my actions, my reactions, my attitudes, I see disharmony where I wish there was symphony. I see this shadow self, something else controlling me. 
He puts it like this in verse 23. I see another law, another force, another principle at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Notice carefully that Paul is not saying that it is his humanity, that is to say his physical flesh, which causes him to be at war with God. The problem is not that we're human. The problem is that even as believers, there remains within us the root of sin, the carnal nature, this old man who continually grabs the reins of our life and keeps us from doing right when we want to do right and leads us to do wrong. Pay very close attention to verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. The problem, the problem preventing any of us from winning this war within and from living a victorious Christian life, the problem is not that we're human. The problem is the sin nature residing within us. So is there no hope for that? Is there no remedy for that sin nature? Are we in fact helpless? Must we live our lives as a kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and over time we do better than maybe the past? Are we in fact captives, slaves to sin, even though we want to follow Christ? I'm not prepared to believe that God has the power to forgive, but does not have the power to cleanse. I'm not going to believe that. Paul doesn't believe it. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news is God has made provision for us to not only be forgiven, but for us to be set free from that bondage of sin that distorts who we are and mars the very image of God implanted in us. And the provision God has made is the saving sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And that becomes very clear when you step out of Romans 7 and step into Romans 8, which begins with these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of sin of life, excuse me, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. At verse 7, he takes that up a notch. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's what he's been describing. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, put your name in there. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Notice capital S, meaning Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, the answer the spiritual defeat is to be found in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times in the first 17 verses of Romans 8. It is the Spirit who changes us from the inside out. The Christian life is not a garment that you put on. All right, now I'm just going to cloak myself in righteousness. And when you look at the outside, you see that, but the inside is just the same. No. It's not something that you wear around, lay aside when you, when you feel like it and pick back up on Sundays. The spirit life is a change, not from the outside in, 
but from the inside out. It is a new heart. It is a cleansing work. It is a freedom from the dominance of sin in your life. That's why this very same Paul could, in other passages, write such things as, we are more than conquerors through him. Where's the old up and down? <laughs> see? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see, he's moving now to a different reality. He's not, he's not denying that moment of struggle, but he's saying there is a breakthrough moment. Well, I have a question for you. We're not here just for, a spiritual or for an intellectual exercise tonight. The question is simply this. Is your life, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, do you really want to follow and yet your life is filled with defeat? I'm here to announce that you can win the war within through the Holy Spirit. It won't happen by trying harder. I love that morning when uh, Dr. Graves talked about the, the fellow finally said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to try harder. No. It doesn't, it doesn't happen by turning over new leaves. You could turn over a whole tree. It wouldn't make any difference in the long run. Because you see, it's not, it's not your own mind or spirit where the problem lies. You've got to have divine intervention. The Holy Spirit of God. I read this week again with, with some interest and with you in mind. I read the, in, the introduction to a very fine book called The Difference God Makes by a fellow named Peter Hale. He writes, When my daughter was three, she was often told that writing on the walls of our house with pencil or crayon was to be avoided on pain of serious consequences. She was assured that some heavy-handed justice would pursue her if she indulged in this admittedly entertaining activity. One day, however, the urge to leave her mark on the world got the best of her. Let me say in her favor that she did not go berserk as some children might have done and covered the whole wall. In fact, she was extraordinarily restrained. The mark was not more than, say, an eighth of an inch. But it was there in red. Remorse struck her after a time, and as I was quietly working at my desk, she came in and asked for my scotch tape. Later, I happened to go into her room and was surprised to see a small piece of Kleenex carefully taped to the wall. <laughs> and underneath, I found the eighth of an inch red mark elaborately hidden. And then it was this paragraph that really caught me. She was trying to cover up what she had done. That's a preoccupation that many of us never outgrow. Oh, the older we get, the more skillful we become. Instead of scotch tape and Kleenex, we use careful words and calculated actions to obscure who we are. We put up a front in an effort to cover up our lives that are out of order. End quote. The good news we are celebrating in this summit is that God can do more than just cover up. God can do more than just put us out there where we have to kind of play the charade there. I like the hymn writer who put it this way, Search me, O God, 
Know my heart today. Try me, O Savior. Know my thoughts. See if there's some wicked way in me. And then cover it up. No. Then cleanse me from every sin and set me free. Winning the war doesn't come by trying harder. Doesn't come by pretending it doesn't exist. We become the men and women God call us to be by His grace alone. Corey, Din, Corey Tin Boone said, don't wrestle, nestle. I like it. You see, the victory in this war comes through surrender. And surrender is a word, truthfully, we don't like. We're conditioned for victory. Well, victory comes when we quit fighting and we present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. I surrender all, all to thee, I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Our prayer tonight, maybe every day, is, oh God, change my heart within.